Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of Spoiler Special Podcasts. This one is dedicated to the latest comic book movie to blaze a trail at the box office. David Ayer's Suicide Squad, the third movie in the DCEU or DC Extended Universe in layman's terms. Or movies based on DC Comics in layman's layman's terms. Uh, Join me over the next hour or so to discuss the movie and tackle your questions about it. Our Empire's very own Captain Boomerang... A man who comes back no matter how hard we try to throw him away. I'm joking, of course. It's our Suicide Squad spoiler special set specialist, all the S's, Nick DeSemlian. Hi, Chris. Hi, Nick. How actually, are you? I own a boomerang, actually, from a visit to Australia one long ago. Uh, interesting fact, there. That is an interesting fact. Do uh, you own a cuddly toy unicorn? That's very personal information. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were on set of Suicide Squad for how, how many days? It was about three and a half days in the end. So that's more than was... Adam Beach. <laughs> It may have been longer than Adam Beach. I got a feeling he was on set for a while. I actually yeah. uh, had a 45-minute conversation with, with Adam Beach, a.k.a. Slipknot, which is a lot longer than his presence in the film. <laughs> and I really thought he was going to be in the film a lot more than he was. I, I think want, he did, yeah. too. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. So there's Nick. Next up, we have our very own Amanda Waller, a tough-talking, hard-thinking, shrewd operator who always eats in the most expensive restaurants in town and gets someone else to pay for it. It's Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? I don't feel like that's a compliment, but I I'll take it, it anyway. It is a compliment. It is a compliment. It is a compliment. Okay, cool. It's more of a compliment. Yeah, I, Fair enough, yeah. 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 Okay, it's a compliment. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm well, thank you. I am uh, looking forward to learning more about this from Nick and uh, and talking about this film. And then, of course, there's me. Who am I in the Suicide Squad parlance? Probably Slipknot. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? My Rick Flag, the, sure. the, the guy trying to get you guys to... To cooperate and do what I want you to do, no, but I can't, and I, my hair I, keeps changing length. You're Scotty. Sorry, you're the guy who people hey. kind of forget was was there, but when when you're they're reminded of you, they, they go, go, "Yeah, they that weep. guy, that guy was in it." Yeah, hang, okay. hang on, isn't Scott Eastwood his his, his name? I believe is GQ, GQ. presumably because he's like super handsome. Yes. So. so, oh, because of the Gentleman's Quarterly magazine, I believe so. Yes. Okay, GQ. Before you hear us three Egypts talk about the movie, let's hear from the film's writer and director, David Ayer, for it is he. He spoke to Nick and James Dyer, for they are lay, uh, when he came to London recently, and fairly no-holds-barred chat about the film. Yeah, uh, moderately. He, he, moderately no-holds-barred. <laughs> Some I, holds were barred. I did wish that I pressed him a bit more on the deleted scenes, especially the Joker stuff, which a lot of people are talking about. But he, as you could probably tell, he was a little bit down and clearly smarting from the, the reviews. And he kept kind of bringing the conversation back to the, the reviews and stuff. So I don't think he was in quite the mood to really get in. This was the day after the premiere when the reviews had just been unleashed. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. I think sometimes I think the the directors are not keen to talk about the alternate cuts, the stuff that didn't get in just up, just after the film has come out, because mm. they want people to watch the film that's there, not think about stuff that w- was cut. But yeah, yeah. he was good. Though. He was on good form. He's okay. a very candid guy. All right. Well, uh, enjoy this interview with David Ayer. Of course, as ever, this is a spoiler special. So if you have not seen Suicide Squad, stop listening, watch the film, come back, and then listen to us. Unless, of course, you're a weird spoiler junkie, in which case, you know, have at it. But here you are, David Ayer talking to Nick and James. We're delighted to welcome uh, director David Ayer to the Empire Podcast for a Suicide Squad spoiler special. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for uh, having me. We're going to dive straight into the big stuff. We want to talk about Boomerang's uh, <laughs> pink plushy, Pinky, which is a pink pony. <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? Uh, it came about, it was actually uh, intended to be a, a piece of set decoration in uh, one of our, our office building sets. And... 
is he was unpacking his bag. Uh, I thought he needed just a little something kind of fun and silly and, and asked that that get grabbed off the truck. And it sort of kept appearing throughout the film at that point. It became a bit of his mascot. Yeah. Well, Boomerang doesn't get a, a sort of a fantasy sequence near the end of the film like some of the other characters do. Would Pinky have appeared in his, in his fantasy? Absolutely. I think there would have been a full-size live Pinky. Uh, but, you know, in his fantasy sequence, I imagined him on a throne surrounded by, you know, uh, acolytes, some sort of, you know, primitive god. And beer, a lot of beer. Much beer, kegs and casks. So is the idea that he's a, is it, I believe the term is a brony. Uh, yes, yes, yeah, brony, um, which is fine. I mean, look, I think, uh, I think it's a good thing and, and it gives him a little, little hobby besides robbing banks. <laughs> where did, where did Pinky end up? I believe the, the hero Pinky is, is locked in a case in a warehouse in Burbank. <laughs> like the end of Raids of the Lost Ark. Exactly. <laughs> no, there is this giant, the Warner Archives, they call it. And, and there is this vast warehouse with with God knows what mysteries and, and treasures locked away. Have you did you keep any of the the sort of props or weapons or any of that stuff yourself? Uh, I don't know if I can only consult my attorney <laughs> before I comment okay. on that. One. All right, and I guess just to to start with the beginning of the movie, was the plan always to um, open with Deadshot in Bel Rev, or were there multiple kind of versions as you tried to figure that out? Well, the very first script uh, started in. Rev and told uh, the story, you know, the backstories of everybody in, in these sort of flashback montages. And, you know, the original conception is that there would almost be these memory bursts, you know, as they sort of sat in their cells recalling their previous lives and also to get the audience up to speed about who they are and, and how they ended up there. So, you know, the first impulse was always to do, do a montage in the first act structure, but you chase different things. I mean, there's there's, there's a linear version we did where uh, it opens up with, with June in the cave and, and her sort of explorations there uh, and tells the story in sequence, uh, you know, with the arrests and Batman. And, and then we go to Bell Rev. Uh, so we tried a lot of uh, different versions. You know, honestly, there may be six or seven different versions of the film, which is which is kind of a normal thing to do as, as you try and find what flows the best and, and how to get the information to the audience as, as kind of quickly as possible. Because there's an incredible amount of character exposition that you need to get through. Because who are these guys? You know, what do they mean to the film? It's it's brutal. I mean, it's brutal the amount of information uh, you have to give, you know, to an audience. And, you know, it is the squad. And it is about this group coming together. And we need to know who they are, what their histories are. And we're finding out that sort of in the more linear version uh, that you know, the audience was left with a lot of questions and, and was a little disoriented as to who to watch and why. So uh, we came up with this sort of what we call the, the dossier version, which has Amanda Waller presenting the, you know, the backstories and origins of, of the various members. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, did Slipknot ever get his own? Yeah, did, you, we, did you shoot? A, yeah, uh, we shot one. But after, after a point, it just it became... Um, 
overloaded, you know, so you have to call and pick and choose your battles and Slipknot gets his head blown off pretty quick. So, you know, I made a commitment early on not to try and create some kind of misdirect because when you have that many characters, every every frame of real estate is priceless. And I, j- I didn't want to invest, um, you know, in, in that real estate uh, yeah. to create some misdirect because after opening night, everyone knows he dies anyway. Mm-hmm. So, did it involve strangling his his backstory uh, flashback? Because I talked to Adam and he talked a lot about the strangling <laughs> practice he'd done. Uh, I, you know, th- that might be more about his sort of uh, personal journey as to getting into the character more than anything. That, uh, but I mean, I guess it does make sense if it's a rope guy. Uh, I could see where he could make those connections. <laughs> and there's a there's a blink and you'll miss it on Harley Quinn's bio when it says implicit in the death of Robin. Yes. Is there a canonical story of how that happened? I mean, because it's referenced obviously in in, in uh, Batman vs Superman as well. Right, exactly. The idea that, uh, you know, the Joker killed Robin and, you know, the idea thereby being, you know, this is this this is sort of my personal thing and, and maybe less about, you know, a larger connection and, and, it, and it could, you know, be revised downstream. But, you know, Joker killed Robin and Batman basically smashes his teeth out and locks him up in an Arkham Asylum. And, you know, it's in it's in the asylum where Joker Joker would have done the damage tattoo as a message to Batman saying, you've damaged me. You know, I was so beautiful before and now you've, you know, destroyed my face. But Mm. that's where the grill comes from. Yeah, there's so much detail that that's kind of there and you could dig into. I loved the, some of the stats that you had when you introduced like Deadshot. He had a big list of guns, which is there for like a second, but I spotted yes. potato gun and musket. Yes, yes. Is- yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was um, you know, it, it's, it's fun to add a little bit of silliness. Like, uh, you know, Colonel Flagg has a, you know, a three golf handicap. Um, <laughs> is that Joel's, is that Joel's actual uh, handicap? I, I don't know. Will's really the golfer. Will's, Will's really the golfer, but, you know, Back it was... Aunt. It was a, a, a fun way to kind of, uh, you know, blast through this information. Could you could uh, Deadshot kill somebody with a potato gun? Absolutely. I mean, I, it depends on the potato. I think. <laughs> As you're part of an extended universe, there's a larger narrative arc. How much of that was prescribed to you and how much of that were you able to, to draw yourself? Well, you know, we always knew we'd end up back in Bell Rev. But again, yeah, it's, it's, it's my best analogy is this is a fleet of ships crossing the ocean, but you get to be the captain of your own vessel. Initially, there's a lot of discussion about how, how to connect to you know the justice league movie obviously in continuity this is post batman versus superman and there's several inbound projects obviously with wonder woman which is actually an earlier timeline Mm. than this so that was kind of free and clear of any friendly fire but you know the um flash movie cyborg movie all these other aquaman movies etc are sort of in a similar present day timeline so we just had to steer clear of all that well the flash is in the movie obviously yes in in the boomerang setup yeah because boomerang is a Flash character, a Flash villain, traditionally, and so it only made sense that it would be the Flash that captured him. So we, we dropped Ezra in for for his brief cameo. Well, that's nice. So the idea is they've met before, or is this the exactly old rivals? Exactly that that there's that uh, you know there's a history of rivalry between them. Yeah, and obviously you get Batman in there a few times, and uh, was that was that always there in, in your script, or was that something that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when I signed on board, I, I explicitly asked for for Batman. I wanted to show Batman as. Uh, 
an opposition. Uh, you know, everything's always done in his viewpoint. And in this case, we see Batman through the eyes of the baddies that he arrests in this case. So uh, I thought it was important to show how they how he takes them down. Can I ask, are you are you by any chance a big John Carpenter fan? I actually am. Yeah, yeah I, I really felt that kind of the Escape from New York was a real touchstone for this film. Yeah, no, it's very, very Escape from New York, very, very mission based. You know, it's, it's an interesting film. It's it's kind of fascinating how, um, you know, the film's getting eviscerated uh, by so many of the critics. And it's 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 fascinating because in a lot of ways, I mean, this is this is kind of an art movie. And and, and I know just saying that is, is going to provoke incredible howls of, of outrage out there. Um, but it, it's really this anarchic punk rock art movie. You know, the Enchantress, the plot, all these things are taking these hits. Uh, but the film is really, it's its the journey of the soul. I mean, you have, um, you know, this woman, June Moon, you know, in a lot of ways, you could say that this film sort of evolves or, or you know, manifolds, manifests out of her soul, out of her heart. And a lot of the movie is, is the war for her heart, literally. And she goes into this cave where, you know, she's presented with, uh, you know, this animal headed God presenting her with, you know, these male and female idols where she becomes, you know, possessed by this alter ego. And it's this alter ego that's, you know, hypersexual and primitive and destructive and angry and rageful and vengeful and just seeks really to to destroy as as this you know sort of force of soul force of nature component and you know everybody else who 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 now has to take her down also experiences their own sort of dark night of the soul as they go along the journey through this abandoned city to you know to confront her and then the idea that she offers up this uh you know fantasy reality to people where uh she can provide them with a false nirvana false happiness and and so the film in a lot of ways is really about you know the splitting of the personality and addiction and, and the dark side of the soul and i probably would have fared much better in 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 the, in the critical trades had i just had a standard issue bad guy in a suit and tie very corporate building robots you know to take over the world you you did something which very few films do these days and you managed to keep pretty much the whole third act and all the supernatural stuff pretty much secret right until the film came out yes do you think that that you know that people were kind of surprised by that and and not ready for it absolutely i think it's it's a combination of factors one of them being that uh i think there was an expectation of what the film should have been and the joker people really wanted more joker and wanted him to be an a plot component and it's it's funny how you know the critics uh call call it a cameo but he has some you know fantastic sequences in the film they're really important for the film great action sequences and really influences the journey quite a bit and and it's that harley joker relationship you know defines so much of who she is uh you know everything about this film is incredibly controversial and you know in a lot of ways it's really a miracle that i got to make it and and it is kind of shocking that you know in in the in the uh analysis critique you know media side no one has really reverse engineered what what i'm really saying i mean just going to the joker as you bring him up there's that 
really memorable scene early on where he's in a kind of circle of blades. Yes. Mm. And are there baby clothes also in that yes. circle? I was yes. wondering about that. Yeah, there's what? some onesies there. <laughs> what, uh, what's the story with that? Some roses, some onesies, some piano keys, cell phones, laptops, uh, obviously a lot of knives and weapons, a lot of empty bottles, and uh, some some tied-off bags of God knows what. Uh, That's a really interesting image. I just was curious about what it, what it means. Quite sort of intriguing. It was inspired a little bit from uh, uh, Pink Floyd, the movie, okay. <laughs> when Pink goes insane in the hotel room. Uh, but it's you know he. I think whether it's love or obsession or um, you know how do you define a feeling in a heart um, how do you define love how do you define obsession it's a subjective feeling and there's a lot of relationships and marriages that are uh, of the nature of Joker and Harley's he's obsessed with her and, and I think he hates that he needs her there were so many rumors during the making of the film and I remember reading three separate stories about Scott Eastwood that he was playing Green Arrow, Dick Grayson, and Deathstroke at different yes, times. Yes, None of which turned out to be true. No, no. He, he's one of the, uh, you know, he's Flag's uh, right-hand man. GQ. You know, GQ plays a, a, a fairly straightforward military character. Yeah, just, I was just wondering generally about the, the, the stories, you know, because there's so much, been so much chatter online about the film as you were making it. Was there anything that stuck out that made you kind of laugh or... Go, where the hell did that come from? Uh, you know, really the uh, Joker being um, Jason Todd w- was interesting. But, you know, with with the the joke or the, with the Robin costume in the Batcave and BVS, you know, obviously that just triggered a lot of speculation as people tried to find, um, you know, framing to put around it. Yeah. There was uh, there was one story I saw uh, about the Riddler being a, a villain in the film. I'm taking that as complete nonsense didn't happen uh i I have seen the movie and i don't recall seeing the riddler this is your first experience of um of making a film that gets this kind of crazy crazy scrutiny absolutely absolutely and uh it's it's both a wonderful and a terrible thing um you know it's it's people seem to project so much into uh these movies they push so much into them and it's it's uh, creates an incredible amount of expectation. Yeah, I spotted um, the Ostrander building. Yeah, building is 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 sort of featured in the movie, which is a really nice Easter egg. Obviously, uh, John Ostrander, yes, was the guy who created Suicide Squad in the first. Who did the uh, r- really the 1980s run, the classic Suicide Squad run, is the author of that, and and also. Um, in, in many ways, the source of uh, some of the storylines in here. I mean, you know, the Suicide Squad is an incredibly dark uh, comic, and and uh, you know, one of the original ones. It opens with a bunch of terrorists slaughtering people in an airport, um, and it's it's kind of fascinating how refractory it was of, of our times today uh you know obviously i didn't want to go there yeah <laughs> in, in the film but it, it, it's interesting the the actual uh footprints origins of it you're saying that you've said already that there is no r-rated cut of this no, no version no. you can stitch together with no crazy violence or anything like that no absolutely no. not it's it's a decision you make uh before you turn the cameras on and 
you know, you, you could easily make this R-rated by having two F-bombs. That'll, that'll do it. That's this, or you have someone smoke a cigarette and now it's R-rated. But, you know, that's not what um, I think people mean when they ask for an R-rated version. Um, you know, so it was always meant to be a PG-13 film. Yeah. You have a dickhead which I enjoyed as a yes. British person. Yes. I wonder if it's like you have eight dickheads that add up to one F-bomb. I, I believe there actually is some sort of Excel spreadsheet out there <laughs> with, with the equivalencies of uh, yeah swear words. I'd love to see that. And in terms of the, you know, it's called Suicide Squad. Two members of the squad don't make it out alive. Correct. Was it always those two? Or was there ever a third? There was never a third. Uh, you know, it's pretty standard in the structure of all the Suicide Squad stories that, you know, somebody rebels against the system and, and, and gets executed by, you know, Amanda or Flag or something. So it, it was important to show the consequences. Um, you're always wrestling with something like this of why were the bad guys play along and, um, you know the the mechanism is is these nanite charges that in their necks which will blow their heads off and you know part of the storyline is joker engineering an escape for harley by going to the inventor of these things and and, and blackmailing him forcing him to uh release harley um and am I right in thinking that the, the nanite bombs are manufactured by Wayne Corps? Yes. So they're Bruce, so Batman is involved in Suicide Squad, even though he may not know it. Exactly. Well, look, Wayne Corp's a big company, and, uh, you know, Wayne Corp does have a history of weapons manufacturing and is something that's, that's been around. So he's, he has a diversified portfolio. Because Amanda Waller is, in a way, the most interesting adversary for Batman, and this kind of sows the seeds for where that could go yes she almost she knows more than him it seems well she she knows what she knows she she's you know obviously an intelligence officer and if you think about it you know if you start for me if you start running down you know the logic trails of things and you have this this batman figure acting as a vigilante and at this point in time he's been doing it you know for maybe 20 years uh the the government the intelligence services would absolutely figure out who this guy is and where he comes from. You know, you'd put a freaking drone over Gotham City and just track the guy. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's only logical. And so, you know, Amanda Waller would somehow get this information. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting point. She's, uh, in many ways, I think, the most interesting character because she's so extreme. Is that essentially the secret to making anti-heroes work. When you're having to make people sympathetic towards sociopaths, you need the good guy to be even worse than they are. Well, with, with Amanda, uh, you know, when you read the comics, she's this fascinating character. I mean, she's so strong and so intimidating. And, um, you know, there's, there's this sort of famous panel of... Uh, she's chewing out Batman and has him backed against the wall as she sticks her finger in his face. And... You know, there's something fascinating about that, um, that kind of character and that she could wrangle these, these monsters. She has to be an apex predator in order to control them. Was, it, was she um, a character that you look forward to whenever there was like an Amanda Waller day? I get that feeling from the film. Yeah, no, I enjoy working with Viola, who's absolutely uh, just a brilliant actor. And, you know, she's incredible at being this this intimidating government official and you could feel it when you do the scenes with the other actors is is you know they're definitely they have this awe and respect for her and 
again, I think maybe because she is such an incredibly gifted actor that, that you do feel at play in these scenes. And you spring that twist about halfway through the film, whether or a bit later than that, where it's revealed that she is the target, the high value target. Exactly. It's, it's a mission movie. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, structurally, uh, you know, you introduce the characters, you, you, you form the team, you know, pull them out of Bell Rev, send them on their mission. And the mission is to, is to basically the movie is Amanda Waller covering up her mistake because she was the one that decided to use Enchantress as a, um, you know, as part of the original sort of core suicide squad. So Enchantress is really the first suicide squad member. Amanda Waller deploys her to clean up, you know, this, this, this entity that appears, which unbeknownst to Amanda's actually Enchantress's brother and she's engineered the escape of this entity so in the whole time Enchantress has engineered her own escape you know it, it's it's funny because you know the plot gets dinged as being incredibly simple but it's actually extremely complex so Enchantress engineers her escape from Amanda Waller and then Amanda Waller decides to cover it up by getting the hell you know having the Suicide Squad rescue her and get her out of that city we got to let you go, David. I just want to ask as a final question. There's that adversary of all the good guys, the prison um, guard played by Ike Barinholtz. Yes. Uh, it's from the Mindy Project. Yes. Uh, um, what the hell is on his browser history? <laughs> the mind is reeling after that. It's a, it's a very funny line. I think, I think it's better left unsaid, isn't it? You know, I, I think he does a lot of uh, uh, eBay shopping. <laughs> Maybe involving uh, ponies. But anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cheers. That was David Ayer. Helen, of course, has just pointed out that I gave the spoiler warning after revealing the death of Slipknot, but, yeah, okay. It's it's all fine. You could it's, tell. It's he, all good. He wasn't in the group shots that were released, like, a year ago. It's <laughs> there was all... a shot of our squad walking, and he's not in the shot. This is true. This is true. All right, so um, what we're going to do now is something quite unusual. I asked for questions from listeners for Suicide Squad questions, and I got sent tons via DM, via uh, email, and I'm going to try and get through as many as we possibly can in the next 40 minutes or so. And you guys have not seen these. And I'm literally doing them at random. So this one is uh, at Alex23Walker. How much do you think Suicide Squad would have benefited from being an 18? Uh, Deadpool-esque, if you will. Deadpool, of course, was a 15. But yeah, the, the point is taken. Yeah, I think it might have it might have helped in the sense that if you're going to portray people as bad guys, then you get to show them really being quite bad. On the other hand, I think they actually pushed it quite hard for a 12A, PG-13, whatever you want to call it. So I think you've still got a sense of villainy here without having to show anything too graphic. And I think a lot of the time, the difference these days between a 12A and a 15 is just the amount of actual blood you show when someone is horribly killed. But someone still gets horribly killed in the, in the 12A, so it's still quite tough, I think. I'm not sure how much you, much as I'm a huge fan of casual swearing, as the guys here can attest, I'm not sure how much you would actually gain from a a couple of extra F-bombs. It's interesting, there's only one F-bomb in the movie I could detect, and that's in a song. Mm. But that's the traditional Mm -hmm. limit for a PG-13 in the States, is one F-bomb. It's interesting, no character says the F-bomb. If you go back to the extended edition, ultimate edition of Batman v Superman, they drop a F-bomb there, Scoop McNary says the F-word. There is a what there a is a dickhead. Will Smith drops a dickhead, mm. which I enjoyed. On set, didn't you? You were privy to a lot of yeah. harsh language. Yeah, I was actually. It was it was interesting because I had my own day, which is always nice because I think the actors are a bit less when there's a big group of journalists. Sometimes the actors are a little bit, you know, all very conscious of you being there. But when it's just you, sometimes they they kind of forget you're there. 
And David Ayer, on the day, I was there for the day where they were all in the Apache helicopter taking off. And uh, David Ayer was trying to stoke up some rivalry between uh, Joel Kinnaman and uh, Will Smith. Because they mm. have a bit of a, a set to on, yeah. on the play. And he was getting Will Smith to swear his arse off. Uh, and say things which I cannot repeat. Uh, so that was definitely the R-rated cut that I was watching them saying, and he was calling them all kinds of names, which uh, none of which made it into the film. But that was interesting. <laughs> wow, the Fresh Prince getting really fresh, Super eh? fresh. Super fresh. But there is a point there contained within the tweet as well, I think about the edginess of the film, and whether it's possible to have that kind of real raw edge in something that is designed to be PG-13. The idea of the film obviously is that the you know it's the worst of the worst, but you're not allowed to see the worst of the worst doing the worst of the worst. So you have to take a lot of people's words for it that Captain Boomerang is as bad as they say that Harley Quinn is you know involved in the death of what we believe is the Jason Todd Robin, or that Deadshot has killed hundreds of people. But no but women or children. No women or children. He has and, his own code, and only usual. only bad people. Mm. But you can't show that really, in a PG-13. And maybe you don't show it because it's Will Smith and having him massacre a whole bunch of people at the beginning of the movie might be off-putting. But. You're right, though. It doesn't quite jibe with, with Harley, the portrayal of her in the movie, that she is involved in killing Robin. It just it doesn't feel like that's from the same... It Doesn't it also throw up a couple of continuity problems, if she was? Well, yeah, we were talking about this yesterday that David Ayer told us in the interview you just listened to that uh, the Joker got the grill, the metal grill that he has in his mouth, because Batman punched his teeth out after he killed Robin. And then basically he gets it later. But And that's why the Joker then put damaged on his forehead. Yeah, but then in the film we get a flashback to him meeting Harley for the first time and he's already got the grill. So presumably he's already killed Robin beforehand, in which case how can Harley be involved in the killing of Robin? And my head's about to explode. But yeah, we were talking about this yesterday and how it doesn't quite make sense. It's a bit of a Mobius band. Possibly. Or then again, you have this sort of rinse and repeat, don't you, of Joker being caught, sent to prison or Arkham, gets out of Arkham, gets caught, gets sent back in again. That's something that, you know, I think you can get trapped in that cycle. So you might be able to explain it the way, possibly that way. No, you don't think so. Okay. (laughs) But um, I tell you what, I think the edginess is interesting, though, because I think you do have a bit of an issue there because uh like for example this is a different thing but the premiere of this movie the ticket said dress code edgy and i like if 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 it's a code can it really be edgy is that a contradiction in terms and i feel like the film is a little bit of the same ilk you know if you are going to be a hundred million dollar blockbuster more than how edgy can you get yeah because because deadpool was a tiny little film by these standards you know yeah 40 million dollars but do you think that um, that edginess is a little bit insincere, perhaps? Well, I think <coughs> we can have a discussion about um, mm. Harley's outfit. Although I actually, that's not my biggest problem. So I, I don't, I don't actually. Th- I think they actually handled the edginess as, as as well as they probably could. I think I think David Ayer brought something to that and actually did okay there. I, I have bigger problems with the film, but it's not really that tone, I think, that I have a, an issue with. I have to say, you know, I'm, I, I love End of Watch, and I think that David Ayer is a very fascinating guy and a, an interesting talent. I've been on the record in the podcast to saying I hated Sabotage, I thought, you know, which is, I think, the film that's probably closest to this in terms of its tone and its style. And Fury, I thought, was very, very good. He has a lot of edge. He is a very interesting guy. Uh, he's done a lot. He's seen a lot. And I do wish, going back to the original question, I do wish that maybe the shackles have been taken off a little bit more. I do feel that they're, they're, you can feel in this movie, you can feel different 
arguments going on between filmmaker perhaps and studio and perhaps people coming in and I know there were a number of different mm. editors in the film and certainly the oft raised argument that the film starts three times or at least has three different introductions and you certainly you certainly feel some scenes trying to strain away from that PG-13 thing and I think the the scene it's a bit controversial but the scene with Common in the nightclub the flashback with the Joker yeah okay it's a controversial scene but you feel like that belongs in an, in in an a R-rated yeah, movie you're right. You're right, and then suddenly it goes back to being a PG-13 so there, there are scenes don't quite feel like they're from the same film mm. to an extent that's true okay so another question now this is from at Sid Lichtenstein <laughs> probably not a real name um Hello, why was Diablo the only character with a clearly defined arc? Why wasn't an arc important for the others? This is actually one of my biggest problems with the film. I thought they made the wrong character sympathetic. I actually really, I did feel sympathetic towards Diablo. I liked him until I found exactly why he's so tortured and why he's so guilty. And I have kind of an issue with that because for me it just felt in bad taste. I don't have any problem with the hitman having a redemptive arc because there aren't a lot of hitmen in the world actually. It's not really a thing outside of comics and TV and and all the rest. I do kind of have a problem with a guy who kills his entire family being the most sympathetic figure in the film because that happens too often and we as a society are awfully forgiving of it already and I feel like if you keep forgiving it on screen and and making him into essentially the tragic hero of the film, that just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth because his family are only portrayed through his eyes and only and and it's his tragedy very much not theirs that we learn about and I had a I just thought that was in very bad taste actually I had a real issue with it just to play devil's advocate or Diablo's advocate um, (laughs) yeah I mean I I wasn't as bothered by that I can totally see where you're coming from but I think it's it's made very clear that he's absolutely miserable and it's a it's a tale of redemption and he's clearly done an awful awful thing and feels racked with guilt and pain and if he hadn't been racked racked with all those things then then I agree but and he does give his life as well for the squad so that's yeah but I mean he he, you know, gets this second chance. Uh, yeah. I think that's my kind of issue with it. Isn't it set up very clearly, though, that it was an accident? He didn't intend to kill them. It's just power got out of control. Yeah, but it always is. And I think that's that reflects real life as well. It's a little bit too close to com- for comfort to me. I don't know. I, felt, I'm not, I, yeah. I, get, I get why they... Th- I, get, I think they thought all of, all of those things. And I think that's why they have him in there. And that's why he gets his heroic self-sacrifice as some kind of redemption. But I don't think he was the character to redeem for me and I don't I, I, if you were going to redeem him and that, that's not a story by the way that comes from the comics is it it's not something that's that's no. established as his backstory so it's a choice that they've made and mm. they've they've made a choice to redeem the guy who kills his entire family in a moment of fury think, or rage or whatever or loss of control and it just feels like bad taste to me because it's too close to home I think this goes back though to the idea that they're pulling their punches with this movie quite a bit you know the worst of the worst I mean one of the models of the movie right from the off everyone was saying the dirty dozen if you go back to the dirty dozen those are really bad dudes they're murderers and rapists and thieves and most of them are unrepentant and most of them don't get redeemed and I felt that this movie went out of its way to, to redeem people and they weren't that bad to begin with and the only one who was really bad was El Diablo mm. and even then as you're right it gets, it gets revealed to be a, a, a tragic mistake It's interesting with Killer Croc because um, you know I did a lot of interviews and, I keep forgetting and, about him Yeah well I think I was expecting him to be a bigger presence in the movie mm. and get to do more but certainly the backstory his backstory is really really dark um, I talked to uh, Adewale, the, the actor who plays him, and he was talking about how he ate his psychiatrist. He's a ca- he's a full on cannibal. This character, and he's actually one of Batman's, you know, old time yeah. from the Rogues Gallery. And he's he's insane. He's like eaten dozens of people and and is a monster, a true monster. But in the movie, 
they've kind of taken that away. Yeah, they have very much. He doesn't come across as insane and actually he doesn't come across as so monstrous. There's a lot of humanity to him and a lot of soul to him. But again, I almost have less problem with that because there aren't that many killer crocodile cannibal men. You know, so I'm kind of okay with it. If they'd given him the redemptive arc, I kind of would have been okay with it, even though that, as you say, would be further from the comics. The arc question is interesting because uh, people do have arcs in the movie, but I guess I guess you're right in saying that clearly defined arc. Deadshot starts the movie as... Well, it's interesting because we meet him post-arrest when we're told that Batman's the only person who could take him down and then Batman basically just asks him to give himself up. I wonder if um, some of the arc stuff could be answered if you think of this as part of a larger series of films yeah and that i think they're clearly setting up harley to break away from the joker in a future film i just don't think they wanted to do it i think they changed their mind david Ayer has even said that you know harley's whole arc is to break away from the joker and become like an independent person that didn't happen in this film i wonder if it was meant to happen at some point um i've heard rumors about the Joker being part of that climax with Enchantress at the end and yeah. coming to try and uh, take Harley away and she refuses and, and joins the squad and to, to save the world instead. I think that would have felt more satisfying. Yeah, it would have very much because I think uh, for me, the moment where she saves the squad came out of absolutely nowhere, like literally nowhere. There was no lead up to that. There was no build up to that. It didn't feel right at all. And, uh, and you're right, if she had just rejected the Joker, actively rejected him, not just, oh, he's dead... That would have been a very different moment, and I think it would have worked a lot better. Yeah, but I mean, Boomerang, I don't mind so much that he doesn't really have an arc. I, I think he's a fun kind of supporting yeah, character who just is who he is. He's unrepentant, although he does leave and then come back Yeah, for no real apparent reason. Uh, but I kind of like that he's just a, a douchebag. Got a question here from uh, Robert Donnelly, at that Rob Don, who says, uh, do you think Harley Quinn was done well enough to deserve her own movie? And it's interesting because, you know, I'm not a huge fan of this film. But I really liked a lot of the performances in it. Yeah. Will Smith, I think, is very, very good. He brings up movie star charisma to what I think is an underwritten role. Uh, Margot Robbie, we've said from the off, looked like one of the greatest marriages of character and actor in any comic book movie. And I think that's proven to be the case. But the character herself, I know, Helen, you may have a couple of slight issues. Really? Just... just... Um, <laughs> But do you think that Harley Quinn has done well enough to deserve her own movie? That's certainly the direction they seem to be going in. Um, let's talk about that character. Let's talk about Harley Quinn. Yeah, this is one of those frustrating cases where I really like the actor and the performance as related to the character. I didn't like what they did with the character. It's actually not a million miles from Henry Cavill's Superman. You know, I, fi- I think he's fine as Superman. I just think they need a different Superman story for him. And, and with her... What she has to do in the sort of in the present day of the film is kind of not terrible, apart from that complete lack of a of a justification of an arc towards the her big heroic moment at the end, which I genuinely thought came out of nowhere. Even her liking espresso was a bit random, but whatever. I think the problem with her was the dream sequences and the memories didn't make a lick of sense for that character, and they undermined her and made me less interested in her every single time that one came up but I thought that the there was a really nasty hint of sexualized violence in the in the flashbacks with the Joker and again I think this is part of what you're saying about you know pushing the edges of a PG-13 of a 12A and then pulling back from it I think that there's a lot of that in those scenes so you see her being carried by the Joker's henchmen I think legs apart put on a table it's a really horrible horrible setup to a scene and then, oh goody, the Joker's just going to torture her. It's not a gang rape. Fantastic. It's it's a really bizarre, unpleasant scene. And I think that's 
bad to begin with. And I get that the Joker tortured her. I get that that's part of her backstory. But it it doesn't play well. And it, mm. the only bit of that scene that plays well is the tiny glint in Robbie's eye, which suggests that she's kind of weird enough or kinky enough that she's not afraid of torture. That, that I thought, okay, mm. there's an interesting thing here. And, and in her earlier scene with the Joker, there's that interesting thing where there's a gleam in her eye that there's something in her that responds to him in the first place. He's not entirely in control. She's allowing him to bring it out of her. And that's a really interesting way to play Harley Quinn. I thought that worked brilliantly. But they kept undermining that with everything else they did with the character. And well, it really frustrated me. I've seen a lot of people throughout the years actually describe Harley Quinn as a problematic character. She is, As uh, yeah. someone who is utterly enthralled to a man, you know, not just any man, the Joker, obviously, but she's subservient to him. She's She is completely dominated by him. She is actualized by him you know everything she does is is for this guy but, but that's um, how she started off it's yeah. not what the character is nowadays and it, yeah. and if you choose to portray her that way in the film it's a, it's a choice you have made i mean she didn't join the the suicide squad until 2011 by which time she had a lot of development already in the animated series and in the comics yeah. so you have chosen <clears throat> to portray her as still under the thumb and even if as you say nick he's planning on sort of emancipating her in a future issue i don't think that's the right choice i think you should have given her more of that to begin with because otherwise yeah. it kind of comes out of nowhere I wanted more um, Harleen Quinzel who is obviously the, yeah. the pre-Harley version of this of this character and I think that that was essential for this film to show her transformation and I thought it was done very half-heartedly it was done in a series of quite confusing flashbacks and you got that one scene with her sitting opposite a table where she's mm. wearing her kind of white coat and then it's over in a flash yeah. There was there was and more I, time of her flash. walking to that table and showing her legs than there was actually facing the Joker as, yeah. as his psychiatrist. And I thought that needed to sit. That needed to yeah. be a five minute scene. Or let's have her meeting the Joker for the first time. And that's that surely is a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah. The very first meeting of these two characters, but instead mm. it's done as kind of two lines of dialogue I, and then we're off. I just didn't think they had a good enough grip on what she is and what she should be um, to make that scene work. I yeah. think. And then the other thing is like her dream sequence makes not a lick of sense well, yeah, she, by, by that point she is Harley Quinn and by that point her dream is not a pure suburban fantasy it may well be a fantasy involving the Joker <laughs> but there should be some yeah. tweaks to that I'm world a, there should yeah. be something askew in that dream because she is meant to be mad by that point yeah I remember watching that and going so Harley Quinn's ultimate ideal is to be married with kids to a normal version of the Joker yeah, uh, I, I think I think Helen may have something to say. I was thinking that at the time, but you know, I think I think Robbie's a lot of fun in the role. I think Harley Quinn in the movie is a lot of fun. Uh, her her delivery of lines is pitch perfect. Uh, you could, of course, argue, and this is something that a lot of people have said about this movie that the team that Amanda Waller recruits to stop the next Superman should the next Superman turn out to be a despot <laughs> includes just one superpowered person <laughs> and uh, a woman with a hammer. You gotta have boomerangs. <laughs> With a hammer, a man with a boomerang, a good shot. Um, who am I missing? Who else? Uh, the, the the lady with the the sword that that takes people's souls. Katana. Katana. Ah yes. Uh, which is completely you know like oh yeah that's normal. Uh, and then I like that. Rick Flag and his incredible uh, change in hair length. You forgot GQ. I did. Well, he's part of Rick Flag's team. He's not part of the Suicide Squad, so um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but oh, and I, I kill, I forgot Killer Croc again. You know GQ, of course. Much missed uh, his sacrifice. <laughs> Did he definitely die? Are we sure of this? Because if you didn't see it, he was an it, inch away from a bomb as it exploded. I know, but maybe it like explodes <clears throat> upwards or something. There's going to be some nonsensical thing. And can we talk about this plan? Because their big plan is mm-hmm. to completely ignore Enchantress and try and take down the bloke with her, and then 
profit. I mean, they just haven't. There's a yeah. middle step there that they just. I think I think they see immediately that, that that he is the guy. It's like you look, you, you get into the situation very very quickly as a, as a hero slash villain slash antihero, and you very quickly learn to evaluate who's got the worst CG and whoever's got <laughs> whoever's got the worst CG tends to be the big bad guy. Okay, because they haven't had the time to work on it. I'm guessing. So you go for him. Right. And you get rid of him. And uh-huh. then and then it all It's amazing that they're able to to make that decision, really, isn't it? These are trained on the, on the information yeah. that they specialists, have. Helen. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's ultimately a very 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 silly setup to this film, isn't it? <laughs> uh, this squad, the idea of this being the squad that they pick, uh, doesn't make a lick of sense. You have to either get on board with that or not. I kind of that, that that's not one of the things that bothers me to be honest. I kind of think it's it's all right, there's a guy called Boomerang who throws really good at throwing boomerangs. He should have been the guy who throws the bomb at the end. Someone else pointed that out, and I went, yeah. That's a good point, yeah. There's, then, there's a big moment where someone throws something at the climax of the film, and it's not the guy but, but then called what, Boomerang. But then what does Deadpool have to do? Maybe what you should have well, had is a Deadpool, sort of... Deadpool. Sorry. Ooh, Deadshot. Ooh, Deadshot. Deadshot. Well, he, sorry. He, shoots, um, he shoots. What they should have front. maybe had there at that moment is uh, is a sort of Ant-Man and Captain America throwing the water truck kind of a moment. You, you know, needed you have more to, teamwork. You, have to, yeah. you needed more teamwork. Exactly. Um, but hey, they're not really a, they're not very good at teamwork. Either. Maybe the next one they'll be really good. At but team. someone else pointed out. <laughs> Sam Asher has pointed out who is um, I think the only person I know who unequivocally loves this film. That's interesting. So shout out to Sam. He pointed out that Killer Croc is the only member of the team who has the strength to throw the bomb thing into the portal thing to blow up the the thing thing machine. That yeah, that's the one. And that Captain Boomerang. He, he might have thrown it with unerring accuracy, but he might have fallen 50 feet short. I think Boomerang, I think you're underestimating his throwing arm. He's constant, <laughs> that guy is constantly holding up beer cans, and he's yep. he's surely got a really pumped up bicep. By the way, Boomerang's type of uh, beer is a brand made up for the film, wow. which is called Gurgler's Ale. <laughs> Gurgler's Ale. Yeah, and right. uh, Harley Quinn's chewing gum is called Everchew. Interesting. So what do we think of, um, you know, a lot of people have asked about the multiple introductions to the movie and how the the squad are introduced. I thought that it was going to be the situation where Batman apprehended all of them Mm -hmm. and put them in Bell, not Arkham, put them in Bell Reeve. But that, that, that wasn't, I wonder if the inclusion of the Flash was a quite late one. It's one of these things where you kind of have a version of the movie in your head. And for some reason, I kind of thought, I got it in my head, like, how cool would it be if this movie started with Bruce Wayne being taken on a tour of Belrev and he's looking for, he's hunting for people with special powers at this point, so he's checking them out and, and that's how you, it doesn't need to be Bruce Wayne, it just needs to be someone going to Belrev and being introduced cell by cell to these guys and mm. that seems like a very neat way of introducing you to this, the world of this insane yeah. prison and I thought it was a little bit ADD it and in effect. those two scenes together, so you, on one hand you've got it, Amanda Waller introducing them, on the other hand you've got the sort of montage going around the prison, why not just put the two yeah. together? You're yeah. right. I don't know. No, and it would make neat. sense for Bruce Wayne to do it because then you'd have a great, you know, some great dialogue with him and Amanda Waller. And mm. the, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I wasn't entirely thrilled. It felt a bit workmanlike the way they did it, and also a bit inefficient. I think I think the Flash thing was because uh, Captain Boomerang is traditionally a Flash villain, so mm. so they thought they'd bring him in and give him something to do, give him a little moment. Yeah. Um, judging by Ezra Miller's little tiny bit we saw in the trailer for Justice League it might have been fun to give him more of a fun moment but you know hey I didn't, I didn't catch what he said did anyone catch what he said I, as he apprehends no, I was, I'll be honest I saw it at the premiere and the sound was so bad I could barely catch what, half of what the Joker was saying either okay yeah it's interesting that they, they gave other things for you know a member of the Justice League mm. to do maybe it would have been nice to have a uniform Batman 
running through I all the, yeah. the characters. And I think maybe that was the plan, because uh, I, I believe that's the shot that Zack Snyder directed, am I right? The Flash uh, yeah. moment, yeah. Yeah, that's the sequence that uh, Zack Snyder directed. But yeah, I, I feel that the movie also started with Amanda Waller in the restaurant with David Harbour and the other guy talking about the, the, the squad, introducing them one at a time. And I, again, we're going back to this idea. We, we know that there were issues on the on the movie in terms of different voices and different factions. And I wonder if the introduction of, of Deadshot and, and Harley Quinn before the movie really begins was uh, a result of that. Question from at Mr. Jeremy Dillon, who asks, uh, if each character could only be introduced once, this is... <laughs> Just fits into it. How would you have opened a film? I mean, how would you have? How would you have done it? I like Nick's idea. Let's do that. Bruce Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> Reshoots. Yeah. It's not too late, is it? Get Ben Affleck in. I mean, that that takes us on to the the, the mid credit sting, which is interesting because um, I believe it was about a year ago where DC said that we would not do that. That is the Marvel thing. I'm not sure if it was an official statement or not, but certainly someone high mm. up within the DC movies said we're not doing that. That's Marvel's territory, and we're not we're going to do that. And now they're doing it which I thought was interesting. What do we make of that? A lot of people have sent in questions along the lines of, does it make sense that Bruce Wayne would be meeting Amanda Waller when he already has a lot of information? He's that, after the hard copies. Yeah, He's, I was just a bit confused about that. He hasn't got a printer. So is he, I mean, <laughs> are we meant to think that she's giving him the information and then erasing it? Or is he just trying to check how much the government knows? Or what is the point of that? She seems to have things that he certainly, you know, we don't know how much Lex Luthor had in... Um, his uh, files that, yes. that Bruce got at the end of Batman Superman or during Batman Superman. I mean, he'd made up their logos, but he maybe didn't know their names. He'd given them logos, but yeah, that's the thing. But did he know who they were? I think he probably so did. But Amanda okay. Waller has seems to have names and addresses and social security numbers for you know Arthur Curry and Barry Allen and June Moore was in there as well. Enchantress, mm-hmm. I believe, at the yeah you know, at the at the beginning. But I, I yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if Amanda Waller is a bit too evil to function in the, within. You know, there, there's murkiness and and a moral murkiness in terms of who Bruce Wayne has to talk with and, and deal with in order to get the Justice League you, up and running. You but. have to assume that she is so devious that she presents a face that is less evil yeah. than yeah. we see her in the film. Yeah. Um, we only see her being scheming and Machiavellian, but you've got to presume she, she on the surface, is a high-up government person who mm. Bruce Wayne would not. And she is scheming and Machiavellian towards badens, so she may be an absolute honey pie towards nice people. She doesn't seem to be though. She basically. Well, no, she doesn't. She, she, uh, she seems to very strongly imply that she knows how Bruce spends his nights. <laughs> I like. Yeah, I liked that line. Uh, the, yeah, you've got to stop working nights or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but it was. so I was confused. I mean, uh, is there anyone in this universe who doesn't know who Bruce Wayne is? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, Zack Snyder on the spoiler special for Batman Superman yeah. basically said that he thinks super secret identities in universes like this are are daft. And I, you know, let's not talk too much about the other company across the across the street, but certainly in the Marvel universe, by and large secret identities fell by the wayside almost immediately with, you know, with Iron Man. Um, only Spider-Man and Daredevil in that universe now maintain secret identities. In this universe, I don't know. I think uh, you know, Bruce Wayne in from what we've understood of Justice League so far in the trailer seems to be fairly openly as Bruce Wayne going around recruiting these super types. So you do wonder how much he's hiding his big bat light under a bat bushel. That's very true. That's very you know, true. I think that maybe they're maybe they're you know maybe they're gonna so. move away from it yeah. a little bit. Well presumably I guess it makes sense for there to be a met, meta human exception so he can talk to the people mm. he's actually working with. And he but doesn't I guess have he's to. giving it away to Walla though in this in this scene. But yeah. no, I, I, I quite liked the scene. Um I thought it was it was fine. I, as I said I'd prefer to have seen them meet up in the, the meat of the film mm. um rather than tacked on as a as a way to get people to to start screaming in the cinema at the end. It just felt a little bit cynical. But it, I think it would have been a lot more effective if we hadn't seen the Justice League 
uh, footage with him at a much more advanced stage actually meeting the Justice League and now we're going backwards to him getting files on mm. them and, and so you're kind of sitting there going well, why are we watching this we've seen and yeah. couldn't he find them from the footage he has I mean he's the world's greatest detective and why Come was on. the photo of Aquaman not him with the trident poking destroying the camera <laughs> that would have been the flip side of, sense, of what yeah. we saw at the end of Batman Superman so uh, yeah it was moderately good. moderately successful moderately yeah. good always good to see Ben Affleck yeah I really like his Batman. That was one of my things I had no problem with in Batman v Superman. Mm, At Lego Godzilla, Graham asks, <laughs> uh, how come there were no sign of good medic humans trying to take down Enchantress and uh, her CG brother? Seems like a world-ending event would attract Wonder Woman, Batman or Flash. Yeah, I was wondering about Flash <clears> as well. <throat> I mean, you know, presumably he's napping or something. I, I have no idea. They're presumably going to explain that away with a line somewhere in Justice League. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure what Enchantress was trying to do. Well, she was making a machine because <clears throat> humanity worships machines now instead of her, so she's jealous, so she makes her own. Mm-hmm. And it hoovers up destroyers? Turns people into black currents. And <laughs> um, it makes a laser show. It's very hard to discern that. It was really. bad. Whatever, it was definitely whatever it was, bad. It was, it was bad. definitely not a good thing. Although, you know, good. multilateral disarmament, I mean, has a lot to be said for it. So. <laughs> but um, weirdly, that was more of a Ghostbusters reboot than yeah. the Ghostbusters reboot we got a few months ago. This is true. But again, this is, a, this is a question that pertains to the other lot as well. When you get solo movies and you go, well, why is that character back yeah. in this huge threat on his own when he could just pick up the phone and get the bloke with the armor to come along and help him out? And it, you know, a obviously from a filmmaking point of view, it's not that easy. But yeah, I do, I do I wonder about yeah, that. Yeah, we, we have to leave them. A, but a the world, the world ending event in this movie is kind of treated almost as an afterthought. I the the, the the crux of the squad's mission in certainly the second act is to rescue someone, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. Meanwhile, there's this thing that could potentially end the world. We don't know. You're right. There might be just more Blackberry production. Who knows? And they seem to be ignoring that in, until the, the very end. I didn't get immediately that they were going in to rescue a person. Uh, they talked about, uh, I think I'm right in saying a code t- name. Yeah. And I just, I thought that that was just the code name for Enchantress and that they were going after Enchantress. I was not clear that it was a rescue mission at all, essentially until after they were in that building. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe that's just me being stupid. But. I was clear, but then again, I was on set for the day where they were filming something <laughs> explaining that. that so. Did you know who it was? Because I've seen a lot of people express that nope. they were surprised when it turned out to be it Waller. It was intended to be a surprise, and it was a surprise. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a um, surprise. I won't say that it was necessarily the, the greatest surprise in terms of making you excited, uh-huh. because I was kind of, you, your mind starts going, who is it? Who is it? And then it's like, it's that character we, we met. Yeah, <laughs> half an hour ago. Yeah, we've seen loads of already in the film. I actually wondered. Um, if we, I wondered if it might have been, you know, at you, some point Lex Luthor. Because mm. I, you know, I thought there is there is a character oh, that could have as part of his deal with the government to maybe get out of Arkham a little bit because he knows a lot of shit now. Lex, he's got a lot of info, a lot of intel, and maybe he is working high up in the government, and maybe he was the guy that they needed to get out because you got to keep that brain box intact. And then he would have been interesting in a dynamic with the with the squad themselves, you know, because he's worse than any, he's you know he's worse than any of them, yeah. basically. Or Ooh. what if it had been Alfred? Alfred, that he's locked amazing. himself in a room and he can't get out. He can't get out. Yeah, <laughs> and he's I've, got loads of ironing I've, to do. I've, I've, I can't find the handle, Master Bruce. I'm terribly sorry. But it's not Luther. We know it's not Luther. We know it was never meant to be Luther, or maybe it was. Who knows? But uh, that does raise the interesting idea about interactions with the squad. Which brings us to the Joker. Mm. Now, do you think, Nick, you probably know this better than anyone apart from people who worked in the <laughs> film, was Joker 
at any point meant to interact with the Suicide Squad? Like I said, I, I, I'm pretty sure he was going to turn up at the end of the film, but not least because in some of the trailers we get a glimpse of him in a tux with his face burned on one side, clearly post-helicopter crash, with a gun. And uh, from what I've heard, he was intended to show up and start lobbing grenades and, and you know have a bit of a showdown with the squad and then try and get Harley on his side. That didn't make it into the film. I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, Jared Leto's obviously said that you know, ten minutes of footage is is not made it into the film of what mm-hmm. he did. I don't know. I don't know why, but yeah, I, I think there must have been some more interaction. Yeah. Now there is a school of thought as well that, as interesting as the, as Leto's take on the Joker is, I don't think he's up there with Heath Ledger or Jack Nicholson. But certainly, the, the, he brings something to this role. It's a different version. Mm. Yep. You either go all in, or you skip completely because if you take the Joker out of the movie apart from the end when he rescues Harley Quinn from Bell Rev how does he affect the plot? Well he steals the helicopter so they have to walk Right That's it That's it Yeah <laughs> so, they, so Yeah they have to walk By taking out his appearance at the end of the movie if it was filmed and we have reason to believe it was where he comes in and then you know forces Harley to make that decision to you know reclaim this is such a wanky Dr. Phil term but you know reclaim ownership of herself <laughs> you know without that then basically can you could you have cut him out of the movie or do you keep him in the movie because he's the reason everyone gets excited about it oh it's a new Joker it's a Joker it's a Joker I do wonder if yeah I mean when you say that I wonder if maybe if the Joker had only shown up in that final scene and we had only heard about him mm-hmm. obliquely until then and you just have that final scene where there's a reveal, this is the Joker and he's coming to break Harley out. And that's the literally the first time you see him is when he takes off the SWAT helmet. Yeah, yeah, People yeah. would have gone insane. Yeah. And they would have gone, holy shit. And he would have had, what, like one line? Yeah. And he would have walked out the film, the film would have finished, mm. and people yeah. would have gone, fuck, I can't wait to see the next one. That'd I genuinely, think, I genuinely yeah. think they should have done that. Yeah. Because one of my big problems, actually, is I've been talking a lot about The Dark Knight recently uh, since I saw Suicide Squad and I just think Nolan the way Nolan treated that character was the right way you have to build him up you have to give him a big entrance you have to treat him with respect and I thought this film just threw him into the mix in the middle of a, a kind of a montage of flashbacks and he was just suddenly in the film yeah, with no are. even his first shot was just him at a table yeah. with a two <laughs> shot and not particularly lit dramatically or anything and I just thought they, they've not put the Joker in this film in the right way yeah I, I, I hated that scene as well but um, yeah, I find it confusing badly shot and obviously really really misconceived that scene in the nightclub with uh, Harley but I, I mean he's a very 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 creepy Joker he is recognisably the Joker and yet a different version than we've seen before which is no mean feat on its own uh, I'm not sure it was worth the months of psychological torture of everyone around him. Uh, well, that's but the thing now. You watch the movie now and imagine that you 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 know you were someone who was sent a live rat or worse by Jared Leto, and then you have no scenes of them. You'd be going, "What? <laughs> to Why?" Be fair, to be fair, that rat is now scampering around Guillermo del Toro's mansion, so that rat has oh. had its life immeasurably enhanced by Jared Leto's <laughs> method acting. But I didn't have any problem with 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 Leto. I, I thought, you know, I, I, I'm yet to be completely sold on what he's doing. But mm. I'm, I'm interested to see what he does in a, in a future film. If if yeah. uh, Ben Affleck's Batman film uh, happens when that happens, uh, yeah. if he's in that, I'd be interested to see what he does with it. And I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, a real face off between uh, his Joker and and Batman. Yeah. I, I again, I think Nick, you should have written this film. <laughs> that has just two two good ideas so far. Well, um, yeah, I, and I also uh, the last thing about the Joker I have to say is I don't think he was jokey enough. I think he was perfectly sane, and everything he did was part of a completely rational plan. And he was just yeah. going right. I got to do this. So I'm going to do that and that. And there was no sense of the play I, and I, the kind of the twisted. 
I guess the most twisted thing he does is in that scene with Common in the nightclub where he's like, oh, you like my girl? Take my girl. And then, what are you taking my girl for? And then he kills him. Uh, that's, you know. And then even the bit where, um, I think a lot of people have talked about this, the birth of Harley Quinn sequence where he throws her into the fat of chemicals. They call it the chemical she dives into They the call fat. it the chemical wedding. The chemical wedding. Okay. That was the name of the scene. Okay. And then he's like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, I'm, oh, I'm so creepy and cookie. Ah, oh, ah, oh, but I love her. Ah, diving after her. And that, that's basically, you know, that's kind of like a rational, normal thought process for a, a mad psychopath, admittedly, but still. I didn't get that scene, really. I got that he was putting her in the same chemical vat stuff that he yeah. blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> why the hesitation to jump after her? Why then jump after her? What was that, what was that meant to convey? I don't know. And it is the least corrosive acid in the world. Yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like, clearly not an... It mustn't be an acid, but it's but it destroys their clothes. Yeah. At least destroys the dye in their clothes. It's very strange. Yeah, my feeling with that is that he... She dives in. Yeah. She doesn't immediately reappear. And so he starts to think, oh, okay, well, I've, I've written it off, you know, and that this clearly she's dead and that wasn't meant to be. And then you go, oh, well, actually, no, I quite like her do I love her have you seen her she looks like Margot Robbie my god I should dive in after her (laughs) and then he (laughs) I did Um, like his laugh I gotta gotta give him props for the laugh yep good props for the laugh and also his incredible organisational skills not only is he able to you know mount this incredible rescue of Harley Quinn which seems a lot more bothered than just what he does at the end of the movie which is you know where she is in Belle Rev just go and get her uh, you know, rather than bribing Ike Barinholtz's guard one of my favourite things about the movie by the way and and then mounting this elaborate plan but also though just the way he puts all his knives and machetes and guns around himself and that, that scene you know the scene yeah, I'm yeah, talking about yeah. this is a man who's clearly dedicated to being <laughs> you know just very Organized, and, but also like it's a creepy scene because it's not just knives and guns. There's like baby grows and stuff. Onesies, aren't there? Yeah. yeah, really. Yeah, oh, no, that right. scene is based on uh, a pink scene from Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah, I did not notice that. But That's uh, creepy. Yeah, I just don't know if you quite creepy get the man. glee that you get with Heath Ledger's yeah. Joker and actually Jack Nicholson's as well, and of course Caesar Romero. But you get the sense that heist scene at the beginning of The Dark Knight. You, you get the, you can imagine him working that out and just cackling and going, "This is going to be amazing." This Joker is a bit too cool to caper. I feel. And yeah. I feel that the Joker should be capable of capering. And that's hard to say. <laughs> a capricious clown prince of crime. Caper, caper, capering. <laughs> capering capable. Okay. Ca- capering capably through the Cape Crusaders. Uh, okay. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, I, I love that idea. Imagine how people would have reacted had you had all this ballyhoo and all this fanfare about Jared Leto playing the Joker. And you watch Suicide Squad and he turns up for one shot at the end of the movie. A sort of the Mark Hamill, if you will. The Mark Hamill, if you will. Absolutely. <laughs> but like doing press and like talking about how insane he was and literally knowing he's all this time he's in one shot. That would so have been wait, awesome. If he, was, if he was actually joking about all the stuff he did, that makes me like him like a million times more. I'm right back up there to Jordan Catalano levels of liking Jared. <laughs> he is the Joker. He's just if he's, like, if he was joking, joking. joking. Should have seen it coming. Uh, we have another question. This is from at Sean Gilbody2, uh, who asks, uh, do you think the film would have been much different if Tom Hardy had been Rick Flagg? Tom Hardy initially had been cast as Rick Flagg, in case you weren't aware, and then he dropped out, I think because of The Revenant. I think The Revenant overran, and it meant he couldn't do Suicide Squad. So they looked at a list of people to replace him, and eventually they, come, they came to Joel Kinnaman, and there we go. I quite like Joel Kinnaman. I think he's a black hole of charisma, but that neither. <laughs> Harsh. Is, is, Harsh. Well, I. I he's think great he's, in the killing. I think he's much taller 
than Tom Hardy. And I think he's much more... Um, he enunciates much better so he has that going for him over Tom Hardy it would have been a different you're right it would have been a very different film with Tom Hardy in that role I think I can imagine Tom Hardy easily playing obviously he's not Australian but you know the, the thing Jai Courtney was doing with yeah. Boomerang was Tom Hardy-esque in it a way it was very much Yeah, he had a that. Tom Hardy vibe to him so I think that as much as I you know would have liked to have seen Tom Hardy being the guy he's trying to keep this under control I'm not sure he's quite right for that straight arrow it is a bit too straight for him, isn't it? I think he might have given it a, it a kink and a, mm. a maybe a, a quirk. He's capable of doing straight. I don't yeah. think. He's, you know, no, I'm not saying he's not, yeah. but it's not what he's been specialising yeah. in over the last couple of years. But also, I think those scenes would have been given an extra frizz on. You know, you have this 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 kind of weird bromance between Deadshot and and Flag. And I just wonder if it had been two A-list actors, properly A-list, going at each other, so to speak whether that would have had a little bit more oomph to it than Will Smith utterly dominating Joel <laughs> Kinnaman in all their scenes together. Yeah, I um, guess so. Yeah. yeah. I don't I, know. But, but I, I didn't hate Kinnaman. I thought he was he was fine. I don't hate him. I just... He's just he's, he's there. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. He's there. Uh, here's a big one. This is from At Red Flossed. Do you think that if the marketing campaign is stuck with the angle it was going for in the first trailer, it might have man- helped to manage people's expectations instead of instilling everybody with the Guardians of the Galaxy vibe? Uh, should DC have stuck to their guns and gone for something darker instead of forcing the lightheartedness of it all? Okay, so this is something we kind of glossed over. The movie did gangbusters in the US and it's opening weekend with a $135 million opening weekend. Uh, not maybe quite as much as they had initially been predicting. At one point it looked like it might outgross Batman v Superman's opening weekend. Didn't do that. But, at the same time, let's be honest, this movie's been given a critical mauling. Not across the board, but I think it's about 30% something like that in Rotten Tomatoes. And, honestly, the questions I was sent on DM, and indeed the Empire pod, uh, Podcast email address, most of them are, I'd say 99% are overwhelmingly negative about the film. And maybe, does that stem from expectations? Does that stem from the first trailer, which did have that, oh, this could be really fun, mm. Guardians the first, type thing? The first act of the film kind of has that same vibe, though, as much as people have been complaining about the redundancy of some of the, you know, the, the fifth introduction to Will Smith or whatever. It's got some of that fun, and it's got the, you know, the the... the oh, look, Deadshot uses a potato gun and all those facts that are flashing up on the screen. And, okay, the musical choices are not always fantastic, but it has some of that vibe to it. And I think maybe what people were reacting to with the the anger that everyone kind of seems to have about this film at the moment is that it turns into a very generic superhero film in Mm. the third act. And it feels indistinguishable from, you know, an X-Men film. It's just a big supernatural force with a generic army of minions. And uh, it, it... just falls into formula and I think people were really hoping that this would do its own thing and yeah, do something different in the same way that uh, not Deadshot but Deadpool did earlier this year the, the reason that that was as, as much of a success as it was is because it, everybody was like oh thank goodness this one is different and I think that's the you're right that's that's the issue right now everybody wants a different twist on it and I think the reason that the other company have been as successful as they are is that to a large extent they have managed to make each film feel like its own thing um, and and this, you know, looked in those trailers very much like its own thing. It looked completely different from Man of Steel, completely different from Batman v Superman, but which it, I think got us all quite yeah. hopeful and excited. But but it did feel like Guardians. The, the trailer, the, the the first trailer. Uh, yeah. But then, but yeah, but in terms of the film, you know, Deadpool has a flippancy right up until the end. Yeah. And they keep busting out ridiculous things. And, and Guardians you're, you're has right. a dance-off at yeah. the end. And so they are 
uh, sort of subverting things and doing funny little twists on stuff. Whereas I feel with Suicide Squad, by the end, you've got quite a generic yeah, film which is going for emotion for these characters that I don't feel they've really earned. And it just feels a bit sort of maudlin and a bit like I don't really care about June Moon and Rick Flagg's romance so much. You know, you want something funny and silly and anarchic going yeah. on. Can we just talk about June Moon, really? <laughs> Great really? name. Great name. Come on. Come on. Ace archaeologist June Moon. <laughs> what does this thing do? This ancient thing. I'll break its head off. I wanted to ask David Ayer about that, but I was too scared. <laughs> yeah, break he's it. quite. He's quite scary. He can be. <laughs> Breaking the head off did seem like a bad idea. The musical choices for me were. Uh, I mean, some great, great songs, some of my favourites in there, but like, dude, mm. can I please have them less on the nose? Can I defend, bit? can I, def- sorry, just to go back slightly, can I defend that? Can I say what I, my interpretation of the, the, the flipping the head off of the statue? Yeah, sure, yeah. yes. Yeah. I feel like she was under a slight spell at that point. Already, before opening <gasps> that's, the statue. That I, that's what I took oh. from it, was that she picks up this thing and there's a bit of spooky music and I felt like Enchantress <gasps> was kind of taking her over already okay, and making fine. her do it. So that's, that's my defence. I don't know if that's what they had in mind because somebody <laughs> must have said something about that scene, surely. <laughs> because somewhere in her archaeology training, she must have been told not to break the head off yeah. ancient statues. <laughs> like that's probably and, in there. And where somewhere. was the buddy system? Where was the buddy? Even Indy took you know Alfred Molina into exactly. into a temple. You don't go in on your own. We don't buddy know. System. We don't know what June Moon went through to get to that temple. Everyone may have died. Her Alfred Molina may already be dead. You want to see a prequel? Oh. I didn't say that. I did not <laughs> say demanding that. one. I am demanding one. So, you know, but just going back to this idea of expectations, and again, there was a great Hollywood Reporter article about how the, the movie may indeed have been compromised by the reaction to that first trailer, which seems to have taken elements, that the, the, the footage from the movie that was being shot at the time, and imposed upon it a tone that the movie, as written and directed by David Ayer, did not have. Mm. It was meant to be darker, it was meant to be grittier, it was meant to be, there's that word again, edgier. And then everyone went, oh, this is this is DC's Guardians, this is, this is going to be fun and irreverent and uh, yeah, great, and with, with people who are bad doing good things. And so then they had to work to retcon the movie to include all that fun irreverent stuff hence the reshoots and yeah. rewrites and and also you wonder how much of it is a reaction to the re, the reception afforded to Batman Superman which again was a very very dark oppressive movie and maybe they thought well hang on if we do two in a, a year and we can't it's not going to work but I think the fun bits were the way to go I think those were the bits that worked I agree. for me I agree um, so, so to the extent that it's led to this unevenness of tone, which I think you're probably right about, then maybe they should have just gone further. I don't know. There, but was, yeah. there was one scene I saw them filming on the Chinook again, where uh, Killer Croc pukes up all this disgusting, like, half-digested goat meat, because he eats goat carcasses in his cell, and pukes it up all over the floor of the Chinook, and then scoops it up and puts it back in his mouth and oh. re-eats it. And David Ayer hadn't told anyone this was going to happen, none of the other actors, <laughs> so people were just going, like, looking really repulsed. And it was, it looked great, and I don't know why they cut that, because what you're left with is quite a serious, just exposition chunk on the... Yeah. the it doesn't, it gives Killer Croc a great moment. Interestingly, I was on the set of Sabotage as well, which you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and there was yeah. a scene in that where, near the beginning of the movie, where Sam Worthington has to hide something in a toilet and he pulls out a big... I watched him pulling out this big prop poo. And Aww. it was absolutely disgusting. It was going all over him. And that got cut from the film as well. So David Ayer doesn't have much luck with the body fluid uh, <laughs> stuff. It seems to keep getting cut. But they're saying that there won't be like a Batman Superman type situation where we get an extra 30, 40 minutes. This, this seems to be it uh, in terms of Suicide Squad. Mm. Um, a few people have asked, where did DC go from here? And it's an interesting one because 
this movie will make a lot of money. I, you know, I, will it make more than Batman Superman? It depends on how it holds up over the next few weeks. At the moment, I think it's this is a hell of a. It, it, it seems on course to hit anywhere between six hundred million and nine hundred million. It's too early to call at this point. So it's just, it's a commercial success. Mm-hmm. But do they listen to critical reaction? Do they listen to people who may be disappointed, audience members who may be disappointed having seen it first time? Or do they do they stay the course? Do they stick with what they're doing and carry on? Well, well, well first of all, n- next thing up is Wonder Woman, which I think is a very different kettle of fish and a very different proposition. You don't think she'll puke up and then eat it? <laughs> I don't think she'll puke up and then eat it. Uh, and I'm still super, super excited for that one because I think it's a chance to kind of find this tone that's been maybe a little bit elusive for these last two films. So I I think that could be the, the sort of the way into this universe that they've been just struggling a little bit to completely find, and I'm hoping that that's going to be it. But I think they they have proven themselves very willing so far to kind of listen. I think every single one of these films so far, we've been told, will be different from the last, essentially. Reading between the lines of what people say, they've taken on board the criticisms of Man of Steel. They took on board the criticisms of Batman Superman for this one. They are listening to people and to the fans and to and to the critics, however much David Ayer says that they're not. They are listening. And I think, you know, it's just a question of how much they can do. And I, th- I suppose the worry of all that is that they listen to all these voices. The pressure is obviously growing from the, from the very difficult birth of this film. We see that there's a lot of different competing voices trying to be heard in the production of these films. And that itself could undermine the films. But I don't think they can be accused of not taking on board all the criticism. Also, what seems to have happened in the last few months is that Jeff Johns seems to have assumed control or been given control or become the Kevin Feige figure at uh, DC and Warner Brothers. And I think they need... I think you have too many cooks. Clearly, the broth ain't always going to come out okay. Uh, I think you do need that, that, that central figurehead who gets DC, which Jeff Johns clearly does. And, and hopefully... This you know they can they can they can move in the right direction because uh, you know again we go back to this idea of people you know people say are there too many comic book movies uh, I think no there aren't too many comic book movies there have been what five this year okay that's out of hundreds of movies proportionally we're okay but what I think we're we're at the point now where in the last year or so we've had too many bad comic book movies mm. and, and I think if we can move if DC can move forward in a way with Jeff Johns at the head uh, hopefully increase the quality of, w- of what they're doing hopefully Marvel can keep their streak going then we'll be in a good place because you know Fantastic Four X-Men Apocalypse you know Batman Superman despite his, you know, has his flaws and this movie that's not a great batting average for the last year I'd say yeah and I think this is a Suicide Squad is a, a scrappy movie it's a messy mm. movie but I think there's a huge amount of potential I'd, I'd happily yeah. see mm. another film with these characters I think they need to work on finding <clears throat> an adversary for them that matches them and I think maybe they could go in a sillier direction with the adversary uh, you know not just a straightforward oh I'm destroying the world kind of thing but yeah. I, I'd, I'd happily see these characters again I, I would too I, I, I agree I had no problem with the with the casting of these characters I thought some of the performances were fantastic we haven't talked about a lot about Will Smith and that's kind of because what is there to say he's Will Smith mm. he does a really good job with whatever he's given and I think his charisma along with Robbie's charisma um, was just central at the heart of the film if you just have if even just those two plus maybe a little bit of comic relief from Boomerang like that's you set up. You do, you know, the rest can come or go as you please. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, I'd love to see more Will Smith and Ben Affleck, more Will Smith and the Joker. He's he's very very good. Uh, as I said earlier on, in a slightly I think underwritten mm. role. He's so good, in fact, 
playing a character that I don't really think we've seen him play recently. If you look at this and focus as well, again, where he was had this amazing chemistry with Margot Robbie. Yeah, I know a lot of people don't like that film, but I thought I thought it was perfectly perfectly decent. If you look at him, he's playing now slightly more immoral characters. And what this movie did for me, especially in the first ten minutes when he's on the phone and he's you know negotiating with that guy and going, no, 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 don't kill this guy unless you give me a million dollars, and now you have to give me another million dollars for insulting me. And I was just thinking, man. Why did you turn down Django Unchained? That's what I was thinking. That's all I could think. It's like, I, this Will Smith in that movie, as good as Jamie Foxx is in that film, would have just destroyed it. Uh, I just, you know, it's 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 a bit sad. But, you know, we, we talked earlier on the year about had he made the right decision to pass on Independence Day Resurgence to go for Suicide Squad. And, you know, I mean, I, mean, I wasn't sure. And yeah, he did. <laughs> he made he made the right decision. And I think they they have to bring Adam Beach back. He hasn't had enough of a go. Oh. Bring him back as his Slipknot's twin brother, uh, Sheep Shank. I just looked up the <laughs> list of knots. <laughs> Double bowline. Double um, bowline. Yes. Because uh. yeah, poor Adam Beach. I, I talked to him on set, and he apparently spent weeks learning all these different types of knots and learning oh, how to rope, guy. do ropes. And poor guy. we needed more knot, uh, more rope knotting. He's a good. I, I like him. He's a good actor as well. He's a very nice guy. At most. Talica asked a load of questions that we've, we've kind of covered, uh, but he also said, is Slipknot's superpower, which from what I could tell was that he owned some rope, uh, the single no. worst superpower ever featured in an on-comedy film. Well, there's that ADR line, the Joel Kinnaman line from off screen that just goes, this is Slipknot, he can climb anything, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. Can he climb anything? What do we think of uh, his death? Though? I, you know, I don't know what didn't quite work as the big moment it was meant to be, but um, I, I think, quite liked the... It established the stakes, you know what I mean? I think you did have to kill somebody. I don't know that you necessarily had to kill somebody quite so ignominiously. I think you could have, like, almost brought in someone almost unnamed and just killed them, but maybe maybe that's what they thought they were doing with Slipknot. But, yeah, I, I, I did kind of want to him to stick around because I like Adam Beach. I think he's a good actor, and I, would like, I thought, oh, he's one of the squad, great. Yeah, because I'd obviously missed that picture a year ago, Nick. So. Yeah, well, he, yeah. he is introduced punching a woman in the face and saying she's got a mouth on her. Yeah, um, well, that's, well so, he's also meant to be a bad guy. So. Yeah, yeah. And according to uh, according to Adam Beach, his uh, Slipknot's backstory is he was caught strangling Wonder Woman. So, so, um, so maybe it's just as well he got yeah. his head blown up. It maybe is, yeah. he's. Um, that's not the canon backstory. Yeah. David no. Ayer didn't seem to know about that. A lot of violence towards women in this film, and a, a lot of, a lot of really disturbing laughter when Batman punches Harley Quinn. Like the the, the screening I saw it in, that mm. that got a big laugh, and I, I wasn't massively, massively comfortable with that. But you know, hey. Mm-hmm. At Sarah underscore Katie asks, uh, who shot down the helicopter the flag uh, and company took into Midway City? Did I miss something, or was that never actually explained? I thought it was uh, Enchantress's brother. I thought it was Incubus. I don't remember who did it. I don't remember it. I thought Incubus was hanging around in the train station the entire time. Well, yeah, but that was when the helicopter went quite low and seemed to pass fairly near the train station, so I thought it was him. I, I may be So wrong. you're basically fine as long as you don't go in this train station it where just, they stay for the entire film. It just seemed really uh, an odd, yeah, plan. Um, but how many helicopter crashes are there in this film? 57. <laughs> there, are, there are at least three. Yeah, three. There are at least think, three. Yeah. And and none of the major, no major character ever gets injured in a helicopter crash. Yeah, They're and that one fatal, at the beginning was pretty. It's like the the line at the beginning of Fast Five, and no one was killed in that bus crash. Really? Because it mm. rolled like sixteen times, and none of them was wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> the greatest film of all time, Helen. <laughs> Griggs dies. 
in a helicopter crash. Griggs, of course, is Ike Barinholtz's character, mm-hmm. who initially I thought, oh, when I saw, oh, he's having some banter with Deadshot. I thought, oh, this could be a really good scene-stealing man on train type person. And then I realised, no, it's Ike Barinholtz, and he's he's got an arc of sorts yeah. throughout the movie. But he dies in the helicopter crash, and the Joker's helicopter gets shot down, and he dies so quickly. Mm. That I think a lot of people didn't realise that it was him. There are a lot of there are a lot of deaths yeah. in this in this film, which I didn't spot some of them, and other people didn't spot others. And yeah. I, I think a major problem that it has is they are trying to cram way too much in. You know, the Joker's henchmen looked amazing on set. They all had these incredible designs. There was a giant eyeball and a panda suit, and there was a tubby cosplay Batman dude that the yeah, Joker. We, oh, yeah. yeah, we see him. Yeah. You know, you see him very briefly, mm. but um, there's so much. And the design, I think, is is really good. The costumes are really good. But I feel like they try to cram everything into this film, and it means that you never really get to enjoy yeah. not too much of it. I do, I do think that's a risk with, with all of these films. Um, and it's, you know, it's something I worried about a lot in advance of, of Civil War, for example. <clears throat> it's like, are you trying to do too much? The, the, whole, the old screenwriting maximum about keep it simple, stupid, just seems to be one that not enough people pay attention to especially in these big blockbuster films because bigger does not always mean more characters it does not always mean more plot sometimes it just means you know make more of what you have I think yeah I agree but yeah he does he does die Griggs does die the missile hits the helicopter and you don't see him on the helicopter before that happens but you see him turn around and go oh shit and then I hope someone cleared his browser. He gets killed. Which browser is a shame because you know, yeah. they were setting that character up, I think, to have some sort of beef with the Joker or you know, have the Joker kill him in some way. Um, perhaps it's good that they didn't go down the expected route, but also uh, he, he, he was so much fun, I thought, in that role. As someone who just talked smack to the, uh, to the Suicide Squad, that it would have been nice to see him maybe given, I don't know, yeah. a, a more grandiose way out. All right. Well, that is it uh, for our Suicide Squad spoiler special, All the S's. Don't forget to join us every Friday for the regular Mothership Empire podcast uh, if you don't already listen and keep them peeled for future specials we'll have a, a movie fill-ins special coming your way very very soon and our next spoiler special I think maybe hopefully that other lots Doctor Strange uh, so you get a break for a couple of months before we come back with the spoiler stuff until that time it is goodbye from Helen toodaloo it's goodbye from Nick goodbye and it's goodbye from me I'm off to get some ropes and start a climbing. Thanks for listening. See you there. Bye.